You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Matt and everybody, all 32 of you that are up there this morning. It's a lot of people in a small space. That's incredible. Well, I want to add my welcome this morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be the pastor of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And church is what we're here to do. This is uh, what we've been doing since we started this morning. We believe that the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. We're a whole bunch of people from different walks of life, different trajectories have come together, and we sing things as one voice. We, we agree with one another, and we sing together. We declare the things that we believe to be true. This connects us with sort of the church across space and time. These are the things that we believe. And we set those things to music because it's a part of our, it's a part of our confession. We believe that our worship informs our theology, and our theology informs our worship. And so the things that we sing matter immensely and intensely. The, the, the music aspect is not the warm-up to get us to the sermon. No, it is a part of worship as we respond to who God is, to what God has done, and therefore who we are. And so that's what's happening this morning. I want to set expectations. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to say a special word of welcome. We're delighted that you're here we want to do everything we can to provide an environment and an atmosphere in which you can actually connect with the God of the universe. We believe that when God's people gather together in God's spirit and open God's word, that God speaks in the present tense. And so that's what we're asking. That's what we're expecting will happen here this morning. Now, speaking of the church, one of the things that the church does is the church is a group of people who, being spirit-fed, spirit-led, come together, and we sort of marshal our resources, all of, the, all of the stuff of life that God has given us to manage, and we do ministry as a church. And so here we are in the middle of December. It's my privilege now to do a little bit of a family business talk, if you don't mind. This is something that we do, and so if you're visiting with us, I'll just ask you to, to sort of enjoy the, uh, the conversation I'm going to have ever so briefly. But our fiscal year at Bethel uh, begins December 1st. That means we just wrapped up fiscal 2017 on November 30th. And if you've been here for a number of weeks, you know that we have been asking uh, our congregation to be generous in their giving here at the end of the year. In October and November, we were estimating that we were going to be running at a deficit of about $500,000. That's a big, huge number. However, we believe that, uh, that the people that God has assembled were more than able to do that. And so we began to pray and ask that God would, would raise up people to be generous. And sure enough, in October and November, we were able to, to receive from generous tithes and offerings a little more than $450,000 of that need, which is phenomenal. It's really, really great, and that represents a 23% increase from October, November of last year. Now, those of you who know me well, you know that I have now outkicked my coverage. I'm talking about math, which might as well be in Dutch as far as I'm concerned, but I'm going to do my best to continue to walk through this because it really is important, and we get to see God's faithfulness in all of this. That means that our 
fiscal year, we ended uh, with giving tithes and offerings and gifts at about $1,976,000, which is astonishingly great, very generous. And yet, because of the expansion of our church and all three campuses, ministry has increased. That still left us uh, with a bit of a deficit. And so we as a staff went back to an already lean budget, and we carved an additional 200000 out of that budget, submitted it to the finance committee who submitted it to the trustees as a modified amended budget. They accepted that. And so the budget for 2018 has been reduced by about 200k. And just to sort of be completely uh, disclosing about what all that means, what that has required is some of our positions that have been volunteer, part-time, half-time, or quarter-time, those have transitioned to volunteer positions. Um, some of our pastors have also taken a reduction in pay, and for all of our staff, we have uh, suspended contributions to our retirement plans for this year, and we're also throttling back a little bit on what we're spending on missions just to cover that deficit for the time being. Now, that is not a panic thing whatsoever. We're very excited about what God's doing at Bethel. We've added 31 new giving households, which is a tremendous opportunity, and we are very expecting that God is going to continue to move in the ministries of Bethel across all three campuses in the coming year, and we're excited for you to be a part of that. And so we're going to continue to ask that you would prayerfully consider stepping out on faith as a response in worship and to become a regular giver or to here at the end of the year be a one-time giver. You can do that online at BethelBible.com or you can drop uh, an offering in the brown box between the exit doors on your way out. But we are very encouraged about what we see God doing in our midst. And so what I'd love to do is pray for us and then we will continue to study in our Advent series. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for all of the ways that you have blessed us in the heavenly realms, of course, and also, Father, here in our midst, you have materially blessed us above and beyond all we expect, certainly, certainly beyond that which we deserve. You are a generous God, a giving God, a God of grace. And so I pray, Father, not knowing what else to ask, I pray that you are the sovereign and that you would move irresistibly by your spirit in the hearts and minds and lives of your people and that you would do what needs to be done, and that we would be receptive to your leading. Father, that you would continue to fuel this church, the church, and your kingdom as you see fit. And we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to be a part of it. And so now, God, we do ask that you would speak because your servants are listening. Would you speak to us through your word, by your spirit, among your people? We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is an exciting time for us. I love preaching in the month of December. We get to preach and talk about the coming of Christ, the incarnation, God made flesh. And so this month, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we've decided to frame this Advent series a little bit differently. We've been talking about God's surprising grace. We've been talking about the extent of and the lengths that God will go to to reach a people for himself. There is no depth, there is no limit to where God won't go. And so we've been saying for this entire Advent series, our big idea for the series has been that sin is no match for God's grace. Sin, though it is enormous, though it is an 
an immense problem in the world. In fact, I would argue it is the problem in the world. It is no match for God's grace. And I don't think we can see that any more clearly than in the genealogy of Jesus. We've been studying these five women that Matthew includes in the heritage, the lineage of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 1 to 6, and we're going to read uh, some of these women who are in the line of Jesus, all of whom are the recipients of God's surprising grace, his unmerited favor and his blessing. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is his resume. In antiquity, you do not produce a resume that says all of the things that you have accomplished, all the things that you have done, where you went to school, who you worked for. No, 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 that doesn't matter. And even some countries today, their resumes are their family heritage, not where they've worked or where they were educated. And in antiquity, this is how you tell someone who you are. It's who you come from. And so Matthew's trying to tell us this is the resume of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the two great fathers of the nation of Israel, if you will. Abraham, the recipient of the promise of God in Genesis 12 and 15. David, the recipient of the promise of God to always have someone from David's line on the throne. And Matthew's trying to say that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. And so here's his lineage. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We talked about Tamar three weeks ago. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, we talked about her a couple weeks ago, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, we talked about her last week, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. This morning, we're going to talk about the wife of Uriah. Matthew and the inspiring spirit of God are not even so nice as to call her by name. Now, we might hear that in our contemporary modern sensitivities and think, well, that's not nice. They should have gone ahead and called her by name. I mean, she's a woman. Yeah, but Matthew has a point. This is not at all a smack on Bathsheba. It's a smack on David. She's listed as Uriah's wife because there is lies and deception and adultery and murder involved in her placement in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of these women that we will have studied in our Advent series have really some amazing similarities. They're all Gentile women. We've got Tamar and Rahab that were Canaanites of questionable character. We've got Ruth, who was a Moabite, certainly of questionable origin. We've got Bathsheba, who was a Hittite. All of these women hook their hopes, live their lives on a Jewish man who will reveal some aspect of God as Savior. We've got Tamar, who trusts that God will provide Messiah through the line of Judah. We've got Rahab, who trusts that God will provide a conqueror through the person of Joshua. We've got Ruth, who trusts that God will provide a redeemer in the person of Boaz. And today we've got Bathsheba, who trusts that God will provide a king 
in the line of David. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back together on Christmas Eve, just one service next week at 1030, and we'll talk about Mary, that she will trust God, that he will provide a son. Now, all of these stories are fairly familiar to us because we've heard them, but they are surprising and they are shocking in how they communicate and convey God's grace and the extent that he's willing to go despite all of man's depravity and error, despite all the tendency that mankind has to depart the path that God intends, grace always breaks through and God always accomplishes his purpose to shower man with peace and with blessing. And so we've said it before, we'll say it again, our theme for the whole series is that sin is no match for God's grace. We've said that morality, the moral of all of these stories, morality has never saved a single human soul and immorality, thanks be to God, has never disqualified a soul from the reach of God's grace. And so into that, we get to talk about Bathsheba. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's kind of right smack dab in the middle of your Old Testament. There's a whole lot of stories going on in there. There's, there's giants, there's witches, there's rocks, there's golden tumors. There's all kinds of freaky stuff happening in there. But we're going to parachute right into the middle, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I want to make sure and set the historical context for us. We've talked about uh, Tamar, Genesis 38. It's in the time of the patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we've moved forward. And we studied about Rahab during the conquest under Joshua in the book of Joshua. We moved a little bit farther forward into the time of the judges in the book of Ruth. Now we've gone all the way into the time of what we call the monarchy, the time when there were kings in Israel before the two kingdoms split. It's the reign of David. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we're just going to walk through the chapter, and we're going to see what we can pull out of this. 2 Samuel chapter 11 Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David mustered his men and mounted his chariot, and he rode to war, and he, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> I so wish that's what it says, but it doesn't say that. David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, some commentators have tried to soften this and say, well, you know, it's probably a good thing because times they were a-changing, and it probably wasn't the wisest move for the king to ride out in battle because what if the king dies, then the throne is left empty, then you've got a succession problem, and oh, it's icky. But that fails to remember that the king in God's nation rides to war. It's what he does. And if he is to die, that's God's business, not the nation's. Things are going marvelously well for David. You ever been there? It's a time of peace, a time of prosperity, a time of plenty. He should be off to war, but he's grown a little bit complacent. He's all but broken the backs of the Philistines, the hated mortal enemy of Israel. He's all but destroyed them. They're scattered to the wind. There's only a few little pockets left. The only remaining nation to oppose them really is the Ammonites, this thorn in their side. The nation of Ammon, you might remember, comes from the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. The other daughter is where the nation of Moab comes from, her relationship with her father. So the nation of Ammon was absolutely hated by Israel, and it's David's job 
his mandate under God to drive them out of the land. But instead, he sits around and he says, no, General Joab, you go. Take all the officers. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem. And we're supposed to hear that because there's going to be some alarms that go off in our own hearts and our own minds that says, danger, danger, danger. When things are so good, I'm healthy, prosperous, and I have idle time. Watch for the nuclear warhead to go off in your soul. This is what happens to King David. Verse 2, it happened. Oh, it, it just so happens, you see. It just came about. Verse 2, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, <laughs> you had days like this? I call it Monday. It's late in the afternoon, it's early evening, and Holmes is still on his couch watching Matlock and Wapner. Like, what are you doing? You're the king. Get up and do something. Lead. No, no, he's, he's laying around looking for something to do. This is sounding all kinds of warning bells. A time of prosperity, a time of blessing, a time of opportunity. And look what happens. He arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And oh, by the way, the woman was very beautiful. Wow. Now, this is, I would contend, the first instance in our Bible of pornography. Pornography is using the image of another for one's own pleasure. The objectification of another for my own desire, for that jolt of some sort. That's all it is. It's treating another person, an image bearer of God Most High, as if they only exist to serve my desire. David just so happens to get up from his couch, and he, he yawns, and oh, the sun's going down. I think I'll, I think I'll walk over here. Oh, look there. There's a woman who just so happens to be bathing. Now, I've been there. Today, you can stand in Jerusalem in the old part of the city, in the former city of David, where his palace was, and you can stand right where he lived, and you can look down and see where her house would have been. It's not like it's across Broadway. It's right there. It's about a story lower. It's just right there. He walks over, and he looks, and he sees. And then he looks again. Martin Luther said, you cannot keep the bird from flying over your hair, but do not let it build a nest in your beard. It's a good word, Martin Luther. Because see, there's, there's seeing, and then there's looking. You put that many O's in looking, you've, you've lost. If you're looking, it's time to look away. He looks, and he sees, and he has an opportunity to abort the mission, but he doesn't. Now, in verses 3 to following, the narrator of this story, I believe it's Samuel, is going to be very curt, very brief. And he's just going to give these verbs that David just does in very staccato order. Not a whole lot of commentary. There's no dialogue. It's just pretty, it's just pretty base. Verse 3, and David sent, David inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam. Now that gets me. It's always somebody's daughter. 
Some of you are parents. Whether you have sons or daughters. There's always a dad. Who's broken hearted. Or on the brink of broken heartedness. That his daughter is about to be treated thus. She is the daughter of somebody. Gentlemen, let me just make eye contact and say whatever it is, she's somebody's daughter. Don't let the bird build a nest in your beard. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Oh, this is the wife of Uriah. David knows. See, Uriah was one of his original 30 mighty men. This guy is one part Rambo, one part Chuck Norris, three parts James Bond. He is the man. He does like special ops for David. He sneaks across enemy lines. He's jacking people in the kidneys. He's bringing David a glass of water when he's thirsty. Uriah is the man. Probably one of David's closest friends. When David is fleeing different people, he gathers this ragtag bunch of mercenaries, and one of them is Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite nation no longer exists by the time of David. The Hittite empire is gone by 1200 BC, but there's still a few of these guys that are around, and they're bad dudes. And this guy has a beautiful wife. When David is crowned king in Hebron, he then moves after seven years his kingdom to Jerusalem, and he sets up his palace who lives right next to the king? It just so happens to be this guy named Uriah who's a Hittite, not even an Israelite. Now, this guy was very close to David. They were tight. They had fought many a campaign, many a battle together. She is somebody's daughter. She is somebody's wife. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. It's not real romantic. It's rather base, actually. This woman is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's shocking. She returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. In English, it's three words. In Hebrew, it's two. It's the only dialogue we get from Bathsheba. She just says, I'm pregnant. There's no scheming. There's no deception. There's no plan that she hatches. Some have said that she was trying to entice David. You know what? The text does not say that. I've heard a lot of guys try to say, well, you know, she shouldn't have been there in the middle of the day. Who bathes on their roof? Uh, listen, Adam, it was his fault. He is the one the text makes completely clear is responsible, not her. Maybe she should have been there, maybe she shouldn't have, but the text does not tell us that. What we know is that she was certainly at the wrong place at the wrong time, and now her life has taken a dramatic turn. I'm sure when she's thinking about all of her life ahead of her, she's not thinking, I'm going to wind up pregnant by the king while my husband is at war. Nobody thinks their life is going to turn out that way. And this woman is in the line of Jesus. She says, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. The heart of a man. I've made a mess. I'll cover it with more mess. I can fix this. I can fix this. I can fix this. And with every shovel you scoop, we make it worse. So he sends for Uriah to hatch this plan. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, 
he doesn't even get an answer because he's not really concerned. Hey, how's Joab doing? Hey, listen, anyway, here's what I want you to do. You ever have conversations with people like that? They know. You're asking them questions you don't care to hear the answers for. So something is going on in your own heart. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Always a good idea, men. Always a good idea. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Don't! That's a, that's a Hebrew word. No, it's not really in there. Frustrated, David has to hatch a new plan. His plan of deception is foiled <laughs> by a noble Hittite. Whereas the king is acting like a Hittite, the Hittite is acting like a noble king. Isn't that ironic and tragic? David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah says to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now this is the guy that you want to be married to Bathsheba. This is the kind of guy that the daughter of Eliab deserves, right? Someone who will love her, protect her with nobility and character. <laughs> and he was. Then David, the defender of the people of God. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him ate in his presence and drank so that he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even inebriated, even under the influence, Uriah's character emerges. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, foiled again, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is particularly cruel. This is a guy that fought side by side, that gripped the sword, that held the shield, and fought with David. And now David's going to have Uriah in his twistedness, in his desire to cover, he's going to send Uriah's death warrant by Uriah's own hand. You ever been there? And you just realize that the schemes you're trying to devise to cover your own error are beginning to harm other people? We see it in David. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also was rescued by David who came to his senses, rode out, and... No. Uriah the Hittite died. An ignominious, non-noble death at the hands of his own king. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, <laughs> Joab knows his king. David is still a military man, and he's going to want to know how all the strategies went. Joab also remembers what happened the last time a messenger brought David bad news. David killed that messenger. Hey, David, good news. King Saul's dead. You're going to have to die for that now. The king's anger rises, and he tries to say to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And then Joab's going to quote what he knows David will quote. 
David's going to quote from the book of Judges and say, hey, you remember when Gideon's son was killed when a woman tossed a millstone over the wall? Why were you so close? Joab's heard this argument before. Verse 21, who killed Abimelech, the son of, now that's Gideon, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Joab says, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Ah, there it is. So the messenger went and came to told David all that Job had sent to tell him. Sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And at this point, he's probably flinching for impact. And David thinks, I did it. I got away with it. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. This is just how it goes. The ball bounces as it will, Joab. Don't don't worry about this. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Can you imagine the grief, the shame, the sorrow, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt? She's pregnant in an obviously illicit union. Her husband, who was a noble man, is dead. When the wife of Uriah heard this, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But David thinks, I've done it. I've gotten away with it. He's dead. I'm going to marry her. She's going to have a baby. Nailed it. But... The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, who sees and knows everything. And then you know the rest of the story. Chapter 12, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, who tells David a story about a poor man who had a a little sheep, and a rich man comes and takes that sheep and kills it and cooks it and feeds it to one of his guests. And David is enraged, and he says, that man must pay fourfold. He must die. And Nathan simply says, you're the man but not in the good way. You are that man. And David repents, and David falls down before the Lord, and he writes poetry, he writes psalms, and he mourns, because though he is forgiven, there is still a consequence, and it splatters onto somebody else. The baby dies. It's a horrific, tragic narrative in the story of the king of Israel whose ultimate wife is in the genealogy of Jesus. So why in the world are we studying this text at Advent? Well, because this story, along with all the others, is a reminder that sin is no match for God's grace. And this story of Bathsheba's ultimate husband, David, reveals three things to us. I just want to point these out very, very quickly. Number one, sin is not a surprise. Grace is surprising. Sin is not a surprise. The shame of all of this is it's not against her at all. It's against David. And he didn't get to this situation overnight. The text is very careful to tell us that this has been a long time in the making. David didn't just suddenly get it from his couch and make a mistake. This was way long in the making. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, we're told that David is crowned king in Hebron. Saul is dead. They crown David king. 
What is the first thing that David does? He takes for himself many wives and concubines. Ah. We're supposed to know that earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel say, we want a king. We want a king. And Samuel says, don't do this. God is king. And they say, we want a king. God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Oh, they're going to get a king. And I'm going to tell the king not to do this, but the king is going to enslave his own people. He's going to take their land. He's going to take their sons and daughters. He's going to take many wives and concubines, and his heart will be led astray. And sure enough, it's the first thing David does. But then we're supposed to know that way back even further, Deuteronomy 17, God tells Moses, hey, Moses, one day these people, they're going to want a king, and the king's going to want to do these things. So write it down, Moses. Write this down. The king is not to take many wives and concubines, or else his heart will be led astray. See, by the time we get to chapter 11, we don't fully appreciate until it's too late that he has been laying for himself landmine after landmine, and his heart has already been led astray. It's a long, slow, deliberate trajectory of wreckage. And in a sense, this is destined to happen because of the corruption of the world and the fallenness of the human heart. The deck is simply stacked against every human soul. The Bible tells us that by nature, all of us are God-haters, that we are prone to rebel in all sorts of ways. It is our default behavior, and apart from God's grace, it is the very best that we can do. And the seasons of plenty and prosperity are often the most conducive to our wandering away from the path that God intends for us, which leads me to our second point in this narrative. It goes like this. The best of men are men at best. The best of men, they're men at best. You want to write your resume? Who would you include? Abraham, Father Abraham, right, right, right. The, the liar, the serial liar who doesn't trust God, sleeps with an Egyptian woman, and fathers the Arab world. That worked out well. That's who you want on your resume, right? How about David, noble King David, a man after God's own heart, right, who killed one of his best friends, slept with his wife in adultery, and lied and lied and lied. At best, men are, the best of men are men at best. He was the hope of humanity, and yet he was fatally flawed. This man after God's own heart. And we're no different. None of us are any different. We're no better left to our own devices. Apart from God's grace, the very, the very best we could hope for is some sort of mild morality born out of fear and pride because of how I want you to think of me, not because of a sincere integrity of character. That's the best we can hope for left to our own devices. Paul tells his readers in 1 Corinthians 10, be careful when you think you stand, you're going down. Those who think they're standing, David woke up. Hey, Wapner's over. I think I'll take a stroll around the palace. He thinks he stands. He's prone for a fall. Be careful when you think you're standing, you are about to fall. There is no sin. Just, just hear this and know this. There is no sin of which you and I are not capable. There may be some that deeply offend you, perhaps, but there is no sin that you and I are not capable of. It is our tendency. And yet, into this context where the best of men are men at best, into that setting comes Jesus the Christ. God comes to earth in Christ, and he becomes a man 
to redeem and undo the curse, as we sang earlier, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. And that stain of sin is a part of his family heritage. And the extent of his reach and the depths of his grace are astonishing. What this narrative teaches us, point number three, and maybe for some of us this is what we need to hear more than anything else, God is not ashamed of you. You may be, but God is not. Can you just imagine Bathsheba? She's damaged goods, discarded in a sense, used, broken, misdirected, wasted years and energy. And by the way, that could all be said of me as well, and yet God's grace is surprising. The good news, the glory of Christmas is that despite all the reasons for him to be, God is not ashamed, nor is he disappointed with you and me ever. There is no such thing as having gone too far ever from God's grace. Yes, there are consequences, but no matter what we've become or what we've done, God is not threatened, never. Not only that, he does not blush at that from which we have been redeemed. It's a part of his story and ours. He includes Bathsheba in his resume. You want to meet a superhero? Just read any of our resumes. All of us have a tendency to brush and polish our resumes. We know that King Herod made up the vast majority of his genealogy. It's not true, but he was trying to make everyone think he was more than he was. Jesus is not that kind of a king. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a Canaanite who slept with her father-in-law. I got a Jericho prostitute. I got a Moabitess, and I got a discarded Hittite. Those are my moms, and I'm the king of the universe. And he is not ashamed to be identified with these women. As proud as God the Father is of Jesus, he is that proud of me. He is that proud of you. This genealogy is telling us that nobody deserves to be in the family of God, and yet his grace is surprising. He invites us in and adopts us in. This is what it means to be in the family of God, loved and cherished and adored in the midst of our dysfunction, not merely tolerated and accommodated. See, because sin is no match for God's grace. All of these women that we will have studied, these Gentile women were pinning their hopes, living their lives in expectation of what God would do through a Jewish man. They would provide the Messiah, a conqueror, the Redeemer, a king, and ultimately a son. It's the story of the church. Largely this Gentile bride who has pinned her hopes to a Jewish man, Jesus, who is Messiah, conqueror, redeemer, king, and the son. That's my story. Now, we've been talking about this genealogy. I think it's time for us finally to, uh, to finish the rest of Jesus's resume. So if you would, go to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read. We're going to continue on. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. We're going to pick up where we left off. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Are you with me? Don't tune out. This is good. But wait, there's more. Verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, and the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
hmm, we've made it all the way to 586 B.C.-ish. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. See, Matthew's going to tell us the Christmas story in chapter 2. But the preparation for that is chapter 1. All of these guys, I'm sure, had significant levels of jacked-uppedness in their lives. Because they're men. They're people who are dysfunctional and depraved at their very best. And Jesus comes from this lineage. Matthew's not merely wasting parchment. He's telling us something. In fact, he's going to tell us something astonishing here in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I'm sure that's nothing more than a dink. That Matthew's just geeking out and doing some quick math. Uh, well, he's got some extra parchment there at the bottom of the page. No, of course not. Matthew is telling us, don't you see? Jesus is the culmination. He's the completion. He's the fulfillment. Three fourteens. Matthew's sending a message. Are six sevens. And Jesus is the seventh seven. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to seven days and then you rest. Creation, seven days and then God, or six days and then God rests on the seventh. The Sabbath was supposed to work the land and the Sabbath year you rest. The 50th year, the seventh seven, the land rests for the year of Jubilee and all is set back. The land regains its nutrients. Matthew's telling us, don't you see? There have been six sevens of generations and the final family of God, one, is Jesus the Christ. He comes from this woman named Bathsheba who had a son named Solomon. Solomon, whose name is peace. That's what Solomon means. It means peace. But later, Nathan comes along and says, oh, no, 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 you're not just going to call him Solomon. You're going to call him Jedediah as well, which means God loves you. God loves you. Peace. God loves you. Peace, because God loves you. And ultimately, the son of Bathsheba, well, he'll die too. To atone for, to redeem all of the wreckage of his forefathers. And to invite into his family those who will believe. And so this morning I ask you, Put aside all the pageantry of Christmas and all the tinsel and all the distraction. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He is the seventh seven. None of us deserve to be in the family of God. Even David, what he does is so much worse than Tamar and Rahab. And yet he is not disqualified because sin is no match for God's grace. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? That he accomplished what he set out to do? to invite people into his family. He is the king that cares. He is Messiah. He is conqueror. He is redeemer. He is king. He is the son of God. 
And what he desires is not to pour out judgment on those who love him and believe, but to make them a part of his family. So I challenge you this Christmas, do you believe the incarnation of God in Christ? And for the rest of us who are believers, I'll challenge you as well. Perhaps you're carrying around shame. Perhaps you're carrying around wreckage. (laughs) He is not ashamed. Oh, it's an awkward family photo, make no mistake. But he could not love us more, and he is not disappointed. This is the story of the women of the genealogy of Jesus. And it's it's our story. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are not shocked by all the ways in which we can run far afield from your path. And you have provided a way of escape. And you love us. And you're not embarrassed to include us in your family. In fact, you're proud to show us off. We know, God, that it's not you're trying to convince the angelic realm that that your family is a good and decent moral family. You're showing off the objects of wrath that you have transformed into trophies of grace. And so we thank you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not believe, I pray, God, that you will move irresistibly in their lives and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son that they will believe, that the penny will drop and they will believe. Perhaps against all explanation or understanding, they will simply believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Father, for the rest of us, would you encourage us all over again that sin, though it is plenty, though it is powerful, it is no match for your grace. Would you convict us and and compel us by your spirit to go and live likewise? Father, I pray that if, again, someone here this morning would come to faith, would be, as it were, Bethlehem, in which the Christ is born in their life for the first time. May salvation come to this house, and may you receive all the glory. God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for Christ. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again so much for being here with us. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. We will do one service at 1030. Lord willing, we will talk about Mary, the final woman in the genealogy of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Hope and I pray this next week of the Advent season is glorious and that you take time to reflect on the majesty of the coming of Christ. And so may he bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may you and I all be Christmas lights this season. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.